Hey guys, this is Robert Breedlove from the What Is Money Show. And as you've learned by watching this show, Bitcoin is the single most important asset you can own in the 21st century. And one of the most important companies in Bitcoin today is NIDIG. NIDIG's mission is to facilitate financial security for all. They accomplish this by bringing a high level of professionalization and sophistication to the Bitcoin marketplace. As a true game changer in the industry, NIDIG is safely unlocking the power of Bitcoin for forward-thinking individuals and institutions alike. By using NIDIG, you will gain access to an end-to-end institutional-grade platform, providing Bitcoin OTC transactions, Bitcoin collateralized borrowing, secure custody, asset management, derivatives, financing, market research, and more. And all of these services meet the highest regulatory governance and audit standards. Led by Robbie Gutman, Yin Zhao, and Ross Stevens, NIDIG has absolutely exploded onto the Bitcoin scene recently and is leading the way for ongoing institutional adoption in this nascent asset class. So please be sure to check out NIDIG as a single source for all your Bitcoin needs. So gold fails a globalizing, digitizing society. And then we have fiat introduced and where does that take us so if i can't use gold i need uh, i need money that's going to be stronger and faster and smarter so what is an example of stronger money well i'm in london i have a hundred million dollars worth of money i need to get it to rome I need to get it to, to Rome on a telegram or I need to move it to Rome at the speed of a single horse and I can't haul that much gold. So I use a letter of credit, right? If I, if I can project money via some credit network, whether it's the Rothschilds network or it's an imperial network or something else, then I've got stronger money and I've got faster money. And um, if I can, um, if I can offer you that money in return for 3% interest, it becomes smarter money. The smarter meaning I created an application that does something complicated. Mm -hmm. Like uh, when I give you money for 30 days and at the end of 30 days, you have to pay it back to me plus 4%. I created a derivative, right, mm -hmm. of the base layer money or a security of sorts. So the ability to create securities and the ability to project them distances with speed enables a more sophisticated economy and is good for economic productivity. So hence the idea of a fiat. And I, you know, I think the earliest fiats were, yeah, they could like trading stations, you know, in French, in the French territories of Canada, right? Mm -hmm. They had credits, you know, credit systems on ships, merchant credit systems. There's there have always been private credit systems, and then eventually there became municipal credit systems. Mm -hmm like the mayor of a city state or something or mayor of a hamlet and then you get to statewide systems and federal systems and agency systems and 
who knows whether or not churches didn't generate their own credit systems. And, mm -hmm. and we know in the military, the military generates credit systems. You know, sometimes they, you know, they have credit vouchers or travel vouchers in the military mm -hmm. uh, or write. I remember, um, you know, I remember the airlines used to give you these, uh, these tickets where you could fly space available. Mm -hmm. And they would give them to um, uh, to their employees, like flight attendants. So the flight attendants are able to use that and give one to their wife or husband, and they sell those things. There right. actually became a secondary market in travel vouchers. Yeah, and because they have monetary value. Yeah, and so you have um, you have private monies and you have public monies, and then you have quasi public monies from any you know any kind of food stamp or institutional mm -hmm. voucher or military voucher that gives you a right to something of value becomes money in and of its own in time so the real question is uh, what why does fiat fail we know why it works the reason it works better than gold is because you put it on a piece of paper and ultimately the rise of databases along with the ability to shuffle paper around meant that you could it's a lot easier to create an application of fiat base layer money by all i got to do is take a check every time i write a check i created an application right mm -hmm. hey pay robert breedlove 797 dollars and 52 cents doing that and a fiat standard takes about 20 seconds mm -hmm. creating 792 dollars and 27 cents of gold is impossible for all but one in a in a hundred thousand people yeah and would yeah. take a day yeah right? so it's pretty obvious why it works because you can create applications faster you can create more beautiful complicated applications types of credit you can move them around faster and um and uh you can uh travel with them further distances and also uh they don't invite violence to the same degree um for example you know a very famous example of a private money uh that was created uh in my youth was american express travelers checks mm -hmm. and i don't know if you remember american express travelers checks they actually became popular before the credit card if people were going to travel internationally and you were going to go to some place they would say well you know before you go you should convert your money into american express travelers checks i mean literally this is a big business mm -hmm. and and the number one use case was that way if you lose them or they're stolen you can get them replaced mm -hmm. it was like i guess the idea was you were less likely uh to be robbed if you're carrying the traveler's check it's like an, if like an analog multi-sig maybe something like that yeah like a multi-signature version of money or wrapped yeah. money yeah 
And American Express made all their money because people would buy a hundred million dollars of traveler's checks and only redeem 95 million. And there was the float and then there was the unredeemed amount. And that was the, that was the difference. And so people used to be very, um, they were very excited about uh, these sort of things. I mean, a traveler's check is almost like a derivative of a derivative. Right. Right. I mean, the pa the paper money is on top of the gold or mm -hmm. or itself. Although now I guess paper money is just base layer money, and the yeah. traveler's check was on top of that. And people like that idea. And I suppose credit card is just another example of a fiat application. And the idea is, you know, you send your kid, you would send your kid on vacation with a credit card feeling comfortable that you could reload the credit card if they ran out of money. Mm -hmm. But if your kid said, uh, you know, dad, I need $25,000 in cash, just in case I have an emergency and I need a, I need emergency appendectomy or something like that. Like there's no way you want them traveling with that. And of course they couldn't even get across the border with $10,000 of cash. Right. Try it. Right. Yeah. So, so 99% of the world has more than $10,000 that they could put on the credit card, but nobody can take 10,000 in cash. So the fiat standard is appealing because of the portability of the purchasing power and because it, in, it doesn't invite violence. If someone steals your credit card, you could cancel the credit card. They stole your travel's checks. You could cancel the traveler's checks, mm -hmm. things like that. I was like, make sure you write down the serial numbers of your traveler's checks, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All of these things. So, but why doesn't it work in the, in the modern era? I mean, the fundamental problem is we start with inflation again. The government can create more of it. But here, the inflation problem is not a minor problem like gold. It's a major problem, right? Instead of getting a guaranteed 2% inflation with an occasional 20%, you get a guaranteed. I think Saifedean suggested the number was more like 10 or 11% guaranteed. 7% guaranteed in the US, more in other countries. Mm -hmm. So you're getting a guaranteed inflation of somewhere between 7 and 11% a year. And you're getting a occasional inflation of 30% or 40% a year. Yep. So the base layer protocol doesn't work so well, right? It's, uh, it's not conservative. Right. And, and uh, so if you have a shared ledger that's not conservative, right, it's, it's collapsing. And, and th that rates, you know, the, there's just nothing I, I, you know, I said to people, there's no engineered machine or structure that works with that degree of error or inflation. If, if uh, you had a 2% leak in your gas tank, over what period, mm. right? If you're leaking 2% a day, your car won't work. And, uh, and so leakage of your swimming pool or a balloon or, or any kind of electrical system or any thermodynamic system at all just doesn't work with that much leakage. So the inflation, it, it, ironically, right? The in, inflation implies you're getting more, but really, 
it's uh, dilution in a way. It's yeah, guaranteed absolutely. dilution or depletion. So that number, the first problem with fiat is it's just depleting energy at too rapid a rate. If we if we just said ten percent a year on average, then a system which is losing ten percent of its energy every single year, or almost one percent a month, mm. is kind of a crippling first order problem on the base layer. Right. It's almost like building on. Uh, if I'm building on sand and the sand was sinking. 10 feet a year, right? What, right? what structure can you build? Right. Right. When you're, when you're building on something, you want to build on granite and you want the minimum deflection. Granite yeah. doesn't yeah. deflect, steel doesn't deflect, sand and clay def deflects, swampland deflects. So the problem that we start with is the base layer is collapsing. The second problem of the fiat standard is confiscation, as the government can seize they can seize your currency or they can seize the asset. Um, and, you know, to a lesser extent, other people can seize it. I mean, you can't, if you carry your cash around, right? There's that, the famous uh, image of Pablo Escobar, you know, sitting and burning $100 bills to stay warm. If you can carry it around, someone with a gun can seize it. So that's a problem. If you don't carry it around, then the counterparty that you trusted it with, generally the bank can seize it. And in all cases, generally the government can seize it. And so these are three fundamental defects with the fiat standard. Your property rights are weak under the confiscation risk. Yeah. And your property is defective because of the constant inflation. You literally bought swamp land in Florida that's sinking. It's, it's worse than that, right? Because swamp land doesn't sink forever. You know, it's pretty much as bad as it's going to get. This is worse than that because it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. Yeah, yeah. Right? And and the, I mean, is, the third... Sorry, sorry, just to insert one thing here. This <clears throat> There's like a conundrum of money here where this is the the tool or the economic medium that's intended to be trust minimized so you can put your wealth there and you don't need to trust anyone else it's like a safe place to park wealth but to get that it's you come with all these limitations of gold historically so to pick up these stronger faster smarter qualities of money it comes with a cost of counterparty risk so it's like the, the conundrum is gold, you can, you know, trust nobody, you don't need to trust anyone, but you can't really trade with anyone because of all of its limitations. Or you can use fiat, in which you need to trust a lot of counterparties, but you can trade with a lot of people. So there's this, this kind of conundrum we've been stuck between historically, and Bitcoin is like the answer, right? It's the, the collapse of counterparty risk. In yeah, we go from heavyweight indestructible money that's a brick that is too heavy to pick up off the floor mm -hmm. to lightweight cotton candy you know which yeah. is which is really easy to move around but ultimately not satisfying and blows with the wind Dude, blows away with time. the wind yeah and i mean the, and the counterparty risk you know is the explanation for inflation, right? The government's inflating it and the counterparty risk 
is the root problem with confiscation. But, you know, again, even if you had your cash in your pocket, you don't have counterparty risk in the near term, but what you do have is an invitation to violence mm-hmm. and, and it's too difficult to move it. Then, then you've got counterparty risk in the form of hypothecation, which is the third problem, which is you put your money in the bank, you know, maybe they won't steal it, but they're making more of it, right? Because they're loaning it out with a reserve ratio of 10 to one, one to 10 or one to 20. And so you put a million in the bank and they create 10 million more, which dilutes your million. Mm-hmm. So the hypothecation is the, is the third failing of a fiat standard. The fourth is the authentication again. Because remember, we wanted to actually be able to move it distances, but you can't authenticate it over a distance in its bearer instrument form because you can't pay for something with cash. So the way to authenticate it is through a counterparty. So I have to put my money in a bank. The bank has to issue a credit card. Then I have to input the credit card into the website then maybe the credit card gets approved. Then I have to do the transaction. Then maybe the transaction gets approved and maybe it doesn't get approved and it doesn't cross all borders. It would be impossible to do a transaction via a credit card, you know, with a vendor in Cuba or Nigeria or China, or I mean, all sorts of places where if you cross central banks, the credit cards don't cross those jurisdictions. So that, that is another way of saying it's an authentication and a transportation problem, right? How, how do I transfer, transport fiat currency? Well, how do I transform, transport a million dollars? Do you know anybody that any private individual that's ever moved a million in cash over a commercial airline? Like it, it, there's almost a presumption that if you had a million dollars of cash in your luggage, that you're a criminal, right? Isn't that interesting? Yeah. There's a presumption that if you try to do it yourself as a bearer instrument, that you're a criminal. And so it's that what we have is we have a monopoly on transportation through the banks. Yeah. But the banks only can really move within the central bank network. Otherwise, they have to cross central banks. Mm-hmm. And so the monopoly is at the bank level, that the central bank level, and then the central banks answer to the government state departments. So the central bank of the US won't do business with the central bank of Cuba. Right. Period. Won't happen. So transportation across jurisdiction is difficult and dangerous where it's possible. It either works, you're either in the zone where it's working, like you're in the US moving money between Bank of America and Citigroup at 3 p.m. on a Tuesday, and then maybe it works. Although the truth is like I get denied, I try to do little credit card transactions between my credit card and my phone. I get denied like a third of the time. (laughs) What type of transaction? If like try to move $2,500 to cash app from your, uh, uh, yeah, yeah. The bank, you know, from your bank sometimes. and the yeah. bank might actually stop it Yeah. or anything like that. You know, if it, uh, if it looks like it's a, it's a transfer. 
you get all sorts of all sorts of limits on the rate at which you can move money. Mm. And if you want to go to higher volumes, if you wanted to move fifty thousand or a hundred thousand, invariably those are you have to have a person, a trusted banker, a human being that's calling you on the phone to yep. move those wires. Yeah. And so the way that we move large sums of money is between 9 and 5 p.m. with a trusted banker with a manual authentication. And I mean, it feels to me like that hasn't changed in 30 years, right? Right. Yeah. So you can't, you can't move outside of the 9 to 5 and you can't do it without that trusted banker and you can't you can't uh, cross any kind of technical jurisdiction or any kind of uh, any kind of political jurisdiction mm -hmm. that's not in their free fly zone right and the result of that is that the impedance to move that money is extreme so on one side yeah it might take you 72 hours and uh, the real cost is hundreds of dollars. On the other side, if we go back to the credit card network, though, you have a monopoly in the credit card network, and the result is there's a two and a half percent credit card fee, right? So where the money does move, there's a two and a half percent fee, and uh, and that's under the best of cases, right? But the remittance network gets up to ten percent sometimes. Yeah. So you've got you've got fees the range from two and a half to 10%. If you're lucky, you get one of those cash back cards. And so the effective cash back is one and a half percent or something. So the effective cost is only 1%. Mm -hmm. But it's 100 basis points, which is a huge amount of money, insanely large amount of money. And the network really isn't competitive and it hasn't changed much in 30 years. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and there's massive, fraud chargeback issues yeah. and all, all of these impedances you're describing i would argue too are essentially an impairment of property rights where in a pure property right you should be able to send express receive move move the asset however you choose but when you have yeah. to then answer to a counterparty or go jump through these hoops or wait all of these things impair your property rights and money yeah, I, I would agree with you on that. I think that your property, your property is impaired. It is taxed, and it's either taxed. It's it's either explicitly taxed by a government, a municipality, a state, or a federal government, or it's uh, privately taxed by the money transfer network that's charging you a fee to move it around. Um, and uh, that's a challenge. So, transportation either difficult or dangerous, or it's impossible, or it's expensive. Those are the problems with that. And then that leads to two other real deficiencies in the fiat standard. One, <clears throat> you got a lot of credit failures because lots of complex debt is layered on top of the base layer money. And that's complex debt and credit instruments with counterparty risk you know, ch check kiting, right? Check mm -hmm. fraud or any anything like that where someone stood in to, uh, to pay lots of fraud and uh, lots of credit failure. And then you've got securities fraud. 
And I guess with security fraud, what I mean by that is there's too many complex applications that are constructed based upon a counterparty's representation to you. And there's no way for you to transparently authenticate or, or, um, or assure mm -hmm. yourself that the, that the application is properly constructed and properly backed. Right. Right. So, and, and you're destined to have that. Someone says, yes. oh, we have $2 billion in reserves, but they don't. But you don't know they don't. And then there's a collapse of the securities they issued right. or the credit or the vouchers or whatever they issued. And so th those things are inevitable. And the, the question is, why? Why do you have credit bubbles? And then why do you have securities fraud on top of the fiat standard? And I think the answer, if we come back to our base, our, our base first principles is, the base layer protocol of fiat is defective. The base layer money is defective, right? Is it a shared, immutable, correct ledger? And the answer is no, it's not shared. It's not immutable. It's not correct. Yeah. Right? It's a, it's a, quasi it's an imperfectly uh heterogeneously shared right uh mutable incorrect ledger so yeah. i guess what you could say is it's a ledger <laughs> right <laughs> yeah it's a ledger ledger yeah but it's not shared it's not immutable it's not correct yeah you, you know you don't have final settlement so you have right. massive fraud on the credit yes. card network you have transfers that didn't take place that are represented to have taken place you have balance sheets that don't exist that are represented yeah. to exist yeah you have you have um you have an issue there with the base layer the second problem you have is the application layer protocol it's random and manual. So the protocol by which I would create applications of base layer money, like a security is an application, a credit card is an application. Uh, all of these things are, there's no, there's no technical protocol or programmable. There's no API. It's a manual protocol. So every single bank creates their own application like a bank loan is an application of fiat and every bank executes their own set of loans and they're all expected to maintain a certain degree of reserves right yeah but they're audited and the fact that they have to be audited uh is proof that they're all just manually executed and heterogeneous right. yeah so there's no transparent uh no transparent perfected application protocol yeah. and the result of that or the implication of that is that the applications in the fiat standard have no integrity right they have they have no integrity in a mathematical sense or a technical sense or an engineering sense uh you know a physical metaphor is in the real world it's uh, I'm standing on solid ground. And in the fiat world, 
my eyes are closed and someone told me I could take two steps to the left and I would be standing on solid ground. Right. But I don't know that I'm standing on solid ground. Um, I don't know that I'm a hundred feet from the cliff. I might be one foot from the cliff. Someone told me, and I don't have a protocol to ascertain whether it is true or not true. Right. And, uh, and so, you know, you could generously say people just make mistakes all the time. I thought you were 10 feet from the cliff and you only were nine. And so that's why you're dead. Maybe it's just an honest mistake, right? Yeah, yeah. But then again, maybe it was in my vested interest to tell you you were 10 feet exactly. from the cliff and you were really five feet from the cliff. And this gets straight to the heart of Bitcoin, right? Where you, it's removing the need to trust. It's, you know, don't trust, verify. And the, the securities fraud you're describing I mean, it culminates in the, the weapons of financial mass destruction with this huge, gigantic derivatives market, which is really premised, I would argue, largely on this, this gap we have between trade and settlement in the fiat system. There's no final settlement occurring, which is the verification mechanism. So in that gap, we have an accumulation of hidden risk that ultimately becomes systemic and lead to giant systemic blowups. And you know, to your point, with there being no integrity, it's like, of course, there's no integrity. These, I would say, the lack of integrity is synonymous with corruptibility. And so, not only does it not have mathematical integrity or or financial integrity, but you could ultimately say there's no moral integrity because these systems they just don't hold up to corruption. I can't take uh, I can't take personal custody of a billion dollars of gold. So therefore I trust it to the bank and I take their gold derivative and I assume that that is base layer money. Mm -hmm. And I can't take delivery of a billion dollars of currency or fiat. So therefore I entrust it to the bank and I take their credit instrument as my base layer money. And you could say that what you've got is two fundamental shortcomings here that uh, that cause these two systems to break. One is the base layer protocol is defective. You need a base layer protocol where you can take final settlement at any scale. Yes. Can you take final settlement of $387? Can you take final settlement of $38 million? Can you take final settlement of $38 billion? Can you take final settlement every day? If you can take final settlement at any scale, at any frequency, then, you, uh, then the underlying gold standard or fiat standard would have some integrity, mm -hmm. uh, at least a modicum. The second problem is there's no application protocol. So there's no way to create a security or a derivative or some layer two application on top of the layer one uh, monetary token. Mm -hmm. we, 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 need the, we need the applications, right? The world needs more than just base layer money, like you need credit or you want yeah. yield or you want to build an insurance contract. Yes. 
Or maybe you need to be able to post a security deposit and you need to be able to get the security deposit back. Or maybe you want to put something in trust with a multi-signature arrangement for 37 years. There, there are lots of applications that make the world work, but there's no application protocol. Yeah. So both in both cases with gold and fiat, the base layer protocol is defective and the application protocol is either non-existent or defective. And what, what makes Bitcoin special and what makes it digital money is Bitcoin, Bitcoin uh, gives you a base layer protocol to take final settlement and it gives you an application level protocol too. Either mm -hmm. we could debate back and forth, right? Is the application protocol on the base chain, the blockchain? If so, it's a Bitcoin transfer or is the application protocol on the lightning, you know, mm -hmm. using a, a layer two? Yeah. Well, either of those, you know, could be viewed as an application protocol. Yeah. And it, uh, you're still maintaining the option for final settlement, even on Lightning, right? So I think the core, and this is so critical for if people can understand this, that the the anti fragility of the world economy even is dependent on this simple fact. If we can have higher frequency final settlement, we can have more verifiability in the economic structure, which means less corruption and less blowups. Whereas the fiat system right now is the complete reverse of that. Very low frequency final settlement, very low verifiability, tons of corruption, lots of blowups. Yeah, fi final settlement with high frequency um creates reality yes that's what the blockchain is right <laughs> it's, it's reality yes and um you know you every single second gravity is testing your structure and testing your orientation mm. you know there's that phrase can you defy gravity and you know and the answer is maybe if you're a great athlete for a second or two mm -hmm. right for for a very short period of time can you defy gravity it, it requires extraordinary strength extraordinary agility and it still comes at great peril right i mean you yeah. could try to do a backflip and you can land on your head and you can break your back and you'll be dead or paralyzed for life within a couple of seconds so there is there is a final settlement you know it's when you look at um if you're considering a crypto asset network like bitcoin and bitcoin is the greatest maybe the only successful example but certainly the greatest example of a crypto asset network the uh the frequency parameter and the block size parameter for a crypto asset network is the equivalent to the space time constants in our unit mm. in a universe. So the frequency, uh, the 10 minute frequency, that's how fast the universe evolves. Mm. And the block size 
is the gravitational content? How does how much mass or what is the relationship between mass and energy and and um, how tightly packed is matter? And uh, once you've established those two constants, you've def you've defined the constants that run the universe. Right. Everything else evolves around those two constants. If this is why you would never want to change them because right. changing them is playing God and you only get to play God once. Like when, when you start the universe, if you change the frequency and the block size of Bitcoin, you invalidate all work that's come before. Right. You, uh, you imperil all structures that have formed in the universe since the beginning of time. You, you impair every mechanism that's been created within that set of structures. You, you mm -hmm. impair them and maybe break them and you throw the future into chaos. Yeah. Right. That, that, all of those things. It's, I mean, it, it couldn't be clearer to me, but if you want the physical metaphor, it's like, what if I triple gravity on the surface of the earth right now? If I could snap my fingers and right. triple gap gravity, how many pieces of furniture do you have that crumple? How many chairs collapse, right? How many people's hearts stop? Right. Right. How many ships sink? How many planes fly? How many factories keep working? Right. Stuff breaks not just not just factories start breaking buildings start collapsing bridges collapse tires deflate right and and uh and so and the person that worked for 100 years to create that great company or that the rockefeller center and it just crumbles yeah okay so like and so you work for 100 years and you did something and it was beautiful until oh it's everybody's dead yeah what, what happened well, you change the gravitational constant, you change the space time constant, and therefore the structure which had been carefully constructed since all of eternity forward, the structure is now rendered null and void and it yes. collapses. It's some um, ships are designed based on the Reynolds number. There's something called a hull speed. And um, the hull speed is a function of the shape of the hull. And that's a function of of the way that fluid flows and and these are basic constants and no matter how fast you push that hole it won't go any faster because the water pushes back right as hard as you push it that's why a 150 foot vessel that's 30 foot wide will cruise at 12 and a half or 13 knots and it doesn't matter the horsepower of the engine in it yeah it's just the way the the world works. Another example of that is shock waves and the speed of sound. Yep. There's a reason for the speed of sound. I mean, it's a, it's a fundamental constant. You go faster than the speed of sound, then you're moving faster than the air can move out of the way. You get a shock wave, lots of devastation. What happens if you change the speed of sound? <laughs> what, what happens if you, what if you change the speed of light? Well, yeah, exactly. This is that. So I love this because maybe we're creating another meme here that Bitcoin is the E equals MC squared of money. And that to your point, you only get to play God once. And Satoshi did that. Satoshi set the rules. Um, 
And this, you know, the strategies we build based on those constants, they are dependent on the invariance of those constants. If you go and change them, then all the strategies that have been built up around them collapse. So, yeah, yeah, like uh, lots, of, like my, all the the entire Bitcoin mining industry. It's all predicated upon Bitcoin coming out at a certain speed, and the protocol tapering off, and the value of all transaction fees are predicated upon the block size. Right. If you increase the block size, the transaction revenues collapse. If the transaction revenues collapse, the Bitcoin mining profitability collapses. Mm -hmm. If the Bitcoin mining collapses, the energy usage collapses, the security collapses, the network collapses. Right. Right. Like uh, you, you don't, you don't, you know, what's, what's going on with some of the proof of stakers is if you flip from proof of work to proof of stake, you destroy your entire mining industry. Right. If you destroy your entire mining industry, all of the security, all, all the social, political, economic, thermodynamic security collapses. Yep. If it collapses, you know, the integrity and the durability of the money collapses. There are all sorts of second order, third order, fourth order consequences to this. And fun, the fundamental basis of integrity is one has to know that God is not going to change the rules on you mm. if you spend your entire life working on something. Right. If you want to drive people insane, change the rules. Like if I just, you know, right. you know, I change the speed of light and the speed of sound and I quintuple gravity before you compete in the Olympics. And then when your competitor starts competing, I turn, I dial down gravity to the moon gravity and they jump 180 feet in the air and they beat yeah. you. Right. And then, and then what happens next? You're like, well, that guy had moon gravity and I had Saturn gravity and my knees are, you know, my legs are broken and my hips are broken and I'm lying on a gurney with an IV in my arm yeah. and my heart's about to stop. And the other dude is bounding <laughs> over the stadium doesn't seem quite fair. Okay. And at, at some point when the, when the gods toy with you like that, then you say, well, I'm not going to play this game anymore. Right. Right. Exactly. And, and uh, people withdraw from the ecosystem. It's like, what would you do other than run as hard as you could away from a random universe that wanted to kill you? Right. We're back and to of course, Sorry, we're back to the original yeah. introduction of immutability, how important that is for money. Um, and I've, I've said this before, but I think what, the way you're articulating it here really unpacks it is that this is really what Bitcoin's doing. It's radically changing the world by virtue of being unchangeable. It's like the first unchangeable set of rules we've ever had. So it's causing us all to reorient our strategies. Whereas fiat is a constant changing of the rules. So you talk about driving people insane. That's why we're going mad in the world. With every election cycle. Yeah. You exactly. could argue with, with every political appointee. Yes. There, I mean, because I could even appoint a different head of the Fed tomorrow. Right. And I would get whatever. <clears throat> the immutability, the immutability of Bitcoin, though, is um it's an emergent property. People would say there's nothing that's absolutely immutable, like short of being God, it's not absolutely right. immutable. It's an emergent property, but as Bitcoin becomes more decentralized, 
the uh, I guess the thermodynamic inertia of the thing increases mm -hmm. and it becomes more immutable. Yeah. When there were a hundred holders, it was something. When there was a million, it was more immutable. When there's a hundred million, there's more immutable. When the Bitcoin mining spreads further, when the holders spread further, when there are more institutions and organizations and jurisdictions holding, the, the more it spreads, the more immutable it gets. Right. And, and therefore, the higher degree of confidence you can have in the integrity mm -hmm. of the entire thing. So that, you know, that that is what's interesting about this entire phenomena i mean i i've defined i've kind of described it as a fire in cyberspace but but you know a better metaphor might very well be a monetary virus mm. in cyberspace right yeah. it's a it's it's a living creature mm -hmm. right and and we can go back and forth over what kind of li living creature yes. but it's a living creature that's uh massively massively decentralized massively fault tolerant that's got a genetic uh genetic code and it's uh it's a swarm creature right it's it's genetically reproducing its dna and uh the the more it reproduces the more it uh it spreads the the more decentralized it gets the more immutable right. it gets the more vital it gets and the stronger it gets and, and it's and therefore paying, paying us to live in symbiosis with it that's how it's growing right it's just it's paying or incentivizing everyone to interact with its network favorably whether you're a miner a holder um a developer everyone's aligned with the success of bitcoin by virtue of its incentive design yeah it's like it's some kind of swarm cloud of truth yeah. <laughs> living yeah. the living truth nebula yes i and, and, i tweeted and this out us all. sorry i tweeted this out the other day i thought you might like it the because fiat i think is such it's the opposite again it's like a cloud of self-deception you know we, we think we can just print more money and make things okay paper over past mistakes and the remedy to self-deception uh, I've been talking to this guy, John Verveke, he says is wisdom. So you might say it's this cloud swarm of organism of wisdom as well, too, that we're getting back to the, the principles of money. Yeah. Uh, extraordinary thing. Yeah. Extraordinary. And to outsiders, we sound crazy. <laughs> so the human race tried with metal money and then it went on to fiat money and uh and then we invented uh computers and then we put them on a network and then we perfected cryptography and and uh so once we once we checked off the computer box the network box and the cryptography box then you had all the components you needed in order to create a crypto asset network and or and that's what bitcoin is right maybe not the first but the first successful mm. crypto asset network that that emerged as the ideal technology for money all right guys that was episode 11 of the sailor series and 
This episode, I think Sailor just did an amazing job of going through fiat currency point by point, um, explaining its history, its emergence, and really all of its failings uh, at a very detailed level. So I think the simplest way to understand this, again, if we get back to that original definition of money, one of the original definitions of money is as a device for expressing value across space and time. And we know gold historically was selected through this free market process as the best asset for storing economic value across time. But due to its physicality, its bulk, uh, which effectively uh, caused it to have technological limitations as money, right? It could not adequately express value across space. We, as a species, were forced to abstract it into a currency to try and augment its portability, to try to make it better for transacting across space. And, uh, you know, this gave us a lot of additional functionality, um, but it also came with a lot of risk. You know, the biggest of which, as we went into, was counterparty risk. So, as Sailor puts this, you know, we, by abstracting gold into currency, we gain another uh, enough. We gain a lot of advantages, right? The harder, smarter, faster, stronger money um, is is able to be captured at a fiat currency layer because we can do additional uh, technological things to it at that layer that you can't do with gold, right? Gold's just the shiny dumb rock. It doesn't have APIs. It's not programmable. Um, it cannot be cannot be beamed through a telecommunications network, which, you know, if we're looking at money through that ideal lens, again, this spread immutable, truthful spreadsheet in the sky, gold is just very limited in that respect. So one of the things abstracting in currency did was it allowed us to have smarter applications. Um, smarter here, meaning that it would allow you to generate yield on your savings or on your assets. And this is, in fact, this is the original purpose of banks, right? So as people would accumulate savings, typically in, in gold or silver, you would custody that money with a bank for a couple of reasons. One, to secure your stash, right? You didn't want to keep it in your home. Uh, the economics of securing gold actually were favorable to centralizing its custody to a, to a central counterparty. And two, you could then optionally as a saver, right, you have savings, you could optionally let the bank match your savings with a borrower. So an entrepreneur, perhaps trying to go out into the world and create some new project or add value, they could then borrow your savings at interest, which would allow you to earn a yield on your savings. So this was something, this, this maturity matching function and risk matching function is something historically provided by banks and again, this, this was due to the, uh, the custodianship of money that banks provided. So this, you know, that's what led us into, and that's why I think this is the best way to think about banks is it's a money warehouse, right? This is actually how it emerged originally, is we had these centralized custodians that were just warehousing the money and issuing warehouse receipts that were redeemable for money, redeemable for gold. And it allowed us to have all of these uh, extra features, but the problem was the need to trust the counterparty, as we've covered before. So 
that paper certificate that was redeemable for gold actually became a debt-based money, right? It is a, the paper itself is not the money. It's not the instrument of final settlement. It is a claim, I'm sorry, not a claim. It's a call option on the money. So you can take that paper certificate to the bank and call your money, like take possession of the gold. And what this does though, and, and the, the pernicious thing about this is that you get into this sequence of deferred settlement. So every time you and I trade this paper note in a transaction, which again is much more portable, much more transactable, much easier to do uh, in day-to-day transactions, especially than physical gold, we are not actually settling with finality. I haven't actually given you money. I've given you a call option to money. And it's only when you take that to the bank and redeem the actual money that you have been settled with finality. You have no more debt on your balance sheet. So this is a very important aspect to understand about currency and fiat currency especially, is that it is a debt-based instrument. If it cannot be redeemed for money, then it is not money. It is a money substitute effectively. And when we went off the gold standard in 1971, That's what put the globe onto this fiat currency standard that is now an irredeemable debt certificate, right? The dollar is not redeemable for gold or anything else. It's a pure confidence game or pyramid scheme. Um, And that's why things from a socioeconomic standpoint have come off the rails since 1971. So... You know, it's, it's pernicious because we didn't have another option. It's like we had gold or we had currency, which added all this feature set to money, but came with this, this really, really potent form of counterparty risk that, you know, and many times throughout history wiped people out. You know, people had their entire savings wiped out, um, either through inflation or, or outright confiscation. So another advantage of these, you know, and say, let me make the point that these debt-based instruments, they're actually, they change the incentives to violence somewhat. And he gave the example of Amex traveler's checks in that you didn't have to walk around with this bearer asset money, right? Like gold coins, if they were stolen, there was no mechanism to, uh, to reverse that, that involuntary exchange of theft. But if you had something like an Amex traveler's check, which is one of the older fiat applications, effectively, um, you would always write down the serial number on your Amex traveler's check. So if you took them traveling internationally and they were lost or stolen for some reason, you could then contact the counterparty, in this case, American Express, provide them with the Amex traveler's check number, and then they would reinstate your traveler's check. Um, And I'm not completely sure on all the details of that system, but that was the purpose, essentially. And you know, it's kind of like if you're thinking about this through a Bitcoin lens, it's kind of like an analog multi-sig. Uh, but the counterparty, well, you know, with a multi-sig, you choose who holds the shards of the key. This would be kind of a centralized multi-sig model where the counterparty is not only are they monetizing the float, so that would be all the funds provided to it before they were redeemed. You know, they have a time value of money, um, business opportunity there. I mean, they also... I think Sailor said they only redeemed or about 5% of the funds went unredeemed. So that would be effectively be free money to the counterparty. So that kind of highlights the advantages and disadvantages of credit-based money and fiat applications more generally. But this, I mean, the main theme here, I think, is that 
credit-based or debt-based money, fiat currency, this was a this was very important for a globalizing society. We needed high velocity money to satisfy um, the needs of a globalizing marketplace, frankly. So then we got into the major problem of fiat currency, which is a component of this counterparty risk we've been discussing, and that is inflation, right? This is, it is a monstrosity. <laughs> In the world economy, and I don't think I'm, I'm overstating it. Um, it's the term we've been conditioned by Keynesian propaganda and traditional economic curriculum to think that it's a normal part of economic activity, um, but it is in fact nothing more than arbitrary reallocation of resources. To say it nicely, uh, violation of property or theft. To say it more accurately, in my opinion. And Saylor, you know, in his engineering mindset, he describes this as the error rate. And I think in the U.S., roughly, when you look at how much inflation we've suffered in the dollar historically, it's been around 7% on average. And abroad tends to be a little bit more like 10% because you get the not only the U.S. dollar inflation, but also the inflation of the other, uh, the weaker currencies themselves. So. This is an error rate and a rate of theft that's been integrated to our monetary system for a really long time. And the consequences of this are really bad. And I, you know, again, as Sailor says, there's no engineering system in the world that would tolerate such a high error rate. Uh, or another way of saying this is like leakage of energy, that this instrument that is designed to express value or energy across space and time is just bleeding out. And it, it, even when it's not being transacted, even when it's just being held and stored for future use, it's just bleeding out. And this is, you know, you could imagine if you were trying to build a house or something and the, the value of the meter was constantly in flux, right? Constantly being diluted or deteriorated, that it would just make planning really difficult. And that's sort of what we have with money today. We, we, we lack a universal metric system or something comparable in the sphere of money. We lack an engineering standard for money. And that's really what Bitcoin is, right? It is this first universal metric system or value system for money. And it can't be violated. It can't be changed. Um, and this is very important for harmonizing human action at scale. And this, you know, the other pernicious thing about inflation is that it's nominally deceptive because you think, okay, my house was worth $400,000. Now it's worth $500,000. I'm richer. But what's actually happened is that that unit of economic perception, money, right? As we're using it as a unit of account function, it's integrated into our mental software. It's actually been depreciated. So you're, you're, perceiving the value of your home through a diminished aperture. That is what's happened. You're not actually richer. The dollar is actually worth less. And this has just been the most simple yet brilliant illusion I think ever perpetrated is people just think they're getting something for nothing all the time via inflation, when in fact, the opposite is true. They're being robbed constantly in broad daylight. Um, 
it's, it's, it's a bitter pill to swallow, but I think when you really come to see it as it is, um, it, it's an important awakening, I think for most people. So, you know, it, it has this nominal deception where you think things are getting more valuable, but what's in fact occurring is there's a destruction of value in real terms. And the second order effect of this is price signal distortion. I've talked about this separately, but again, when entrepreneurs are unable to properly conceive or perceive of the world, then they're led into a misallocation of capital. So they'll, you may think that you could borrow money at a certain rate and then execute a project at a higher, with a higher expected rate of return and net the difference. But what this fails to account for is the inflation itself. So when the entrepreneur borrows and then he goes out and tries to buy inputs for his business, the inflation starts to manifest itself. The cost of inputs increases. And all of a sudden, these uh, believed to be profitable projects become unprofitable. And this, these cumulative misallocations of capital caused by fiat currency inflation, this is the boom and bust business cycle that we all think is completely normal. And it just happens that we have these gigantic economic crises every 10 or so years. This is a direct consequence of manipulation in the market for money by central banks, like full stop. There's always volatility. There's always, um, you know, errors in the market, but the market is what clears errors. When we paper over the errors um, in the marketplace, we're, we're, we're interrupting the evolutionary process, the error clearing process of markets, and we allow the errors to grow much larger and much more significant. Um, and it's just very disastrous all the way around. And so this, you know, it's effectively a non-solid foundation. And this is kind of the core message. You never want to build your house on sand, right? So why would you want to build your civilization on a fluctuating currency, on an, on an uncertain rule system, right? We cannot even develop a strategy around it because you don't know what the rules are going to be. You don't know what the money supply is going to be. You don't know what the interest rate is going to be. You don't know how much more it's going to change in the future. Um, and this, you know, the great example here is uh, Wittenstein's ruler who said a long time ago, if you measure a table using a ruler and you can't trust the reliability of the ruler, then you're not sure if you're measuring the table or you're measuring the ruler. You get into this domain of complete relativism where everything is only evaluated through the lens of something else. There's no absolute standard by which to evaluate something. And again, you know, it's we would never accept this in the realm of spatial or temporal measurement, right? If this if the value of the second or the hour fluctuated randomly based on some central control board or the value of the meter or the mile, it would just would make no sense. And it would throw all human cooperation into total disarray. Yet that is exactly what we have in the market for money. So <clears throat> it's really bad. Fiat's really bad. You know, it's just not worth the trade-offs even um, that we made for it, right? Uh, so the other problem with fiat is that confiscation is enabled. You know, the counterparties or the currency issuers in this case, they can just 
confiscate property very easily, very cost effectively. So instead of a government, for instance, having to go out into the world and directly, explicitly, visibly violate the property rights of an individual homeowner, right? Like coming to their house, kicking them out, uh, performing eminent domain or whatever it may be, they can instead just print money. And again, so long as everyone's caught up in this spell that printing money is somehow a net positive and they don't ask too many questions or push back, then government can just get away for, with us for a very long time. Yet it is in fact the same thing, right? They are again allocating themselves this call option on property called money and externalizing all of the inflationary costs onto property holders. So it is, it, again, it's, not, it's nothing more than a violation of property rights. It's just done in a much less visible fashion but therefore done at a much larger scale because people don't see it or understand it enough to push back against it. So this kind of leaves us in a conundrum, right? So we have this conundrum of money we talked about. You can have gold, which is a trust minimized asset, holds its value really well over time because its supply is relatively predictable. Yet it comes with extremely high transaction and security costs. So to move gold over time, you know, move gold across space or even to secure gold in a vault over time, like the costs are very high and the costs tend to scale with the amount stored. So that cause causes market actors to then want to amortize that cost into a centralized custodian. So this develops a business model for centralizing gold. So then we get currency or or you know later fiat currency we get all these advantages of lowering the transaction cost of gold we've increased its portability across space so now we have a high velocity money but we've we've assumed now we've given up some some attributes of gold and we've now assumed the interpersonal trust and counterparty risk that comes with centralizing the custody so the conundrum is we're stuck between do we want to express value well across time with gold or do we want to express value well across space with fiat? But each one can't do the opposite, right? Gold does not express well across space. Fiat does not hold its value over time. So we're stuck between these two worlds. And, it, you know, historically, we just didn't have a good option. We've just had a boom and bust in civilization driven by this technological conundrum between gold and currency. And, you know, the other problem with fiat clearly is the hypothecation issue. So hypothecation and rehypothecation essentially means reborrowing or reusing collateral. Um, and this is also called in the banking system, the money multiplier effect. So if a bank takes in $100 of deposits, right, that is a liability to their customer. They owe their customer $100. But if they then in turn take, say that, and this is a premise on the reserve ratio. So typically it's around 10%. Right now it's at 0%, which is a real problem. With a 10% reserve ratio, banks are then allowed to take $90 of the $100, $100 liability, the money they owe their customer, and they're able to loan that to another customer. So they've effectively increased the money supply uh, by $90. So the money supply goes from $100 to $190. And then this same effect repeats from, from bank to bank. And that 
you know, you get into these money multiplier effects where the original $100 in deposits can be expanded even on a 10% reserve ratio in, in 10 plus X. So $1,000 say increase, uh, increase to the money supply. And this just injects a lot of leverage into the system. So we, we again, we're amplifying the boom and bust business cycle. We're, we're causing, uh, a perceptual disturbance in the economic system that actually causes um, the accumulation of hidden risk and blowups. Uh, it's really bad, right? You're, we, we could very simply think of leverage as a tool that, that amplifies gains or losses, right? So if you bet correctly with leverage, you can have outsized gains. If you bet incorrectly with leverage, you can get liquidated and wiped out. So it's, it's no coincidence that when we start injecting leverage into our monetary system, we polarize the outcomes, right? We've had the stock market up 7% year over year for a decade straight, right? It just seems like really strong economic growth. But what we're not seeing is what percentage of that growth is actually just the dollar being diminished. And then in year 10 or around about then, you have a correction back to economic reality, which is like a 2008 type event or even a March 2020 type event. So we're, we're doing this to ourselves, right? It's the, the corruption and the undependability of money that's injecting these hidden risks into the economic system. This is not the natural order of the world. We are doing this to ourselves through the corruption of money. And the other problem fiat introduces is this authentication problem, right? So if you wanna move money, especially, uh, first of all, you can only move it within business hours, which is a pain. Um, you can only move it within certain jurisdictional bounds. Um, there's typically large fees to move larger amounts of money. So the expense of moving money scales with the amount moved. There are delays, right? If they don't know, if the bank questions the counterparty you're sending the money to, then they may delay you. Um, could be days, could be weeks. There are the possibility of account closures. Um, so all of this, all of these strictures in, in, in the market for money, in the system of liquidity, these are effectively limitations on your property rights. So again, property, like this is the basis of civilization. If you own property free and clear, you can do whatever you want with it right? So long as you do not transgress against the property of others. Yet in the banking system, we tolerate this impairment that some overlord gets to decide when you get to move your money, how you get to move your money. They get to ask questions. You know, who is this company? Who are they? Um, this gets into all the problems of KYC and AML. Like it's, it's honestly just one giant scam, right? It's one giant mechanism of attempted top-down command and control over your property. So this is a, a force that is countervailing to civilization itself, yet we tolerate it as if it's the norm. And it's hard to believe things have gotten this far, especially in the 21st century where we consider ourselves to be so advanced. Um, and so in this dynamic, you know, central banks and banks effectively become the deputies of government. They're constantly checking on who's moving money where and determining, you know, if it's if they're good actors or bad actors. But all of this is relevant to the aims of the government itself. And 
you know, one manifestation of this is the censorship you commonly see, and this takes place in many parts of the world, um, in the interface layer between banking and crypto platforms. So many people have reported this, trying to send their money onto an exchange to buy Bitcoin. Um, they're often getting censored or they're getting their bank account closed or they're getting delayed. And this is just because, again, you don't have absolute control over your property when it's in the bank, right? You have an IOU from the counterparty. And all of a sudden, when you go to redeem that, which when you buy Bitcoin, it's, at, it's equivalent to being in a bank in the you know, early 20th century and taking your dollar in to redeem gold. You're basically swapping your money substitute for real money. But this, again, shows you where the bank tries to stop you from doing that because they have a vested financial interest in keeping you in their custody, right, where they get to control you and profit from you. That's a real problem, right? This is a limitation on property and therefore is a decivilizing force. And I mean, like, it's your money, right? It's your money. You sacrifice your time, your most personal property, which is yourself and your time, your skills, your ingenuity, your know-how. You sacrifice that every day to obtain this money, okay? So that's property right and money. The most important property right we have outside of our own control of ourselves is money. We put it inside of an institution where we do not have complete control over it. So we are sacrificing and serving this panopticon, uh, this, this institution that impairs our property rights. And when you start to think of it like that, it is, it's quite mind-blowing, in my opinion. So, I mean, the point here is that the base layer of fiat currency is defective, right? It's subject to political whim. They can violate your property at will. And then importantly, it doesn't scale. Um, you know, it's got a lot of fraud built into it, um, which is basically an unsound substrate for human civilization. And then we start to look at the application layer. I think Salem made a great point about this. The base layer is defective, but then we roll up to the application layer. It's not automated. All, like each little bank is performing its own manual review process. They, they're, because they're running their own processes, the base layer is defective. They can't communicate on a standard protocol. So it does not scale. It's a very inefficient monetary system. And, you know, Nick Zabo wrote a great piece on this. Um, I forget the title of the piece, but if you just Google Nick Zabo, S-Z-A-B-O, and his term that he coined, social scalability, he talks about the importance of scaling systems where we need to be able to create systems that conduct important operations without us having to allocate human brain power to every movement, right? That's how we scale as a civilization. When we can systematize important operations and then free ourselves to go and focus on other aims that we can't systematize. That's how we scale, that's how we economize, and that's how we create wealth in the world. The entire layer of banking is antithetical to that process. It's anti-entrepreneurial, it's anti-civilization, it's destructive. Um, and this is why you know, a lot of people use that parasite host analogy, which I think is very apt. You know, it's just a rent-seeking group siphoning wealth off, off of productive economic actors. And you know, without 
engineering standards, you can't have APIs. So the application layer itself, not only does it not scale, but it doesn't interact, right? You have these little um, silos of, of applications, which you, you will have noticed, depending on what banks you've used, they all kind of have their own custom thing. Um, and without that, the, the application layer lacks integrity, right? There's no mechanism through which to settle the application layer into final settlement, right? The fiat dollar is incapable of final settlement. It has debt and counterparty risk integrated into it. And that risk is being constantly realized through inflation. So the government is effectively uh, going through a slow motion default of its debt through inflation. So it's just printing money to pay off its debts and keep itself sustainable, pushes that cost onto society. So everyone, and this is so important because you work, depending on your tax bracket, two to six months out of the year for government. You work to pay for government. That's your direct tax bill, right? That's your, say, 20 to 50% um, effective tax rate, depending where you are in the world. I mean, everyone's got their own coefficient. This does not account for the fact further that the currency is being inflated and that inflation is being used to further tax population. So without an ability to settle with finality, right? To get out of dollars into something that can't be, can't steal from you into a money that can't steal from you, that you're just being further and further subjected to this economic tyranny. And so in that sense, this is why we talk about the difference between deferred settlement and final settlement. Final settlement is truth, right? Final settlement means you have received an asset that is 100% equity and 0% liability. And this is the equation in accounting, by the way. Assets, this is your balance sheet. Asset side of your balance sheet equals liabilities plus equity. So for a dollar, you have asset side equals a percentage of liability, which is all of this counterparty risk you assume, plus a percentage of equity that you have. But with Bitcoin or physical gold, you have an asset that is 0% liability. It's a bearer asset, which means 100% of your asset value is equity value in your hands, the owner, right? It's a full and robust property, right? And so, you know, this to have a mechanism of final settlement is what keeps an economic system honest. And this reminds me of the old Buffett quote, when the tide goes out, you see who's swimming naked, right? So many actors can do really well when the market's moving up and you're borrowing and reborrowing and reinvesting and everything's, uh, again, debt amplifying your gains. But when the tide goes out and pulls back, it's those who have strong equity positions, so strong balance sheets or, or um, are in a solvent position that do well. And an instrument of final settlement or a money that's pure equity is completely necessary to be in that position. Um, and that's what is so different about Bitcoin is that, you know, gold was a great instrument for final settlement, but it could not be conducted at high velocity. And for the first time with Bitcoin, we have a system that can settle anywhere in the world to the base chain. This is, this is ignoring Lightning Network and other features that accelerate it further. 
we can perform final settlement anywhere in the world, typically within an hour. So what we have now is a money on which to build our economic system that is capable of conducting high frequency final settlement, which is to say high frequency truth or high frequency verifiability, right? This is, this is back to the ethos of Bitcoin. Don't trust verify. I don't need to trust the individual. I can just trust the Bitcoin network that the transaction and the money has been verified when it's sent to me. Um, this creates an anti-fragile economic system. Whereas fiat is the exact opposite of this, right? We have no final settlement, not even low frequency. It's not even possible. You can't even settle outside of the dollars if you're purely within the fiat system. So you just have deferred settlement on top of deferred settlement, just getting, just expanding with more and more hidden risk uh, as the economy booms. And then when it busts, it's, it's cataclysmic, right? And, you know, so no final settlement, low verifiability, and therefore extremely high fragility. And that is what the economic system, especially since 1971, has been characterized by. Extreme booms, extreme busts, extremely high fragility. And this has real consequences in the lives of people. And it's all rooted in this, right? It's a poor engineering standard. It's a non well-thought-out system of economic activity. And it literally can be fixed, right? This is why we all say Bitcoin fixes this. So, you know, to finish, Bitcoin is changing the world by virtue of being unchangeable. It's a really big phrase, um, but to Sailor's point, if you want to drive people insane, just constantly change the rules. And you know this intuitively, right? If you walk into a poker room at a casino, the, the hand rankings in the poker game and the rules and the rake and all these different uh, aspects of the game, they don't change, right? You need invariant rules in a game so that players can develop strategies and compete with one another. If the rules change, then all of a sudden the incentives are twisted towards, well, how do I control the rules and bend them to my favor? And that's exactly what fiat is. Fiat is a constantly changing set of rules, driving the world insane and causing the most unscrupulous among us to fight for control over the rules so they can benefit from this free lunch. So this is why I am so passionate about education and showing this for what it is, right? We are, we are doing this to ourselves. This fiat currency is self-deception at scale. And if wisdom is that which allows us to cleanse ourselves of self-deception at the individual level, then I would argue that Bitcoin is the wisdom of money, right? It's something that, it's a technology that prevents us from deceiving ourselves by thinking we can print money to solve our problems, which if no other lesson of history has been learned, that one has been learned so strongly, so repeatedly. And so in that way, you know, Bitcoin is just this absolutely invariant rule set. And that's why it's such, having such an impact on the world, it's forcing everyone to adapt their strategies to these unbendable, unbreakable rules, right? You see it at the individual level. We're seeing it, uh, most recently at the corporate level, right? With companies like, like Sailor's MicroStrategy adding Bitcoin to their balance sheet 
anticipating future adoption because they understand these dynamics very fundamentally. And that same dynamic will be playing out at the nation state sovereign wealth fund and central bank levels as well, because all of the, what all these things have in common, right? Is they're all strategies, right? Life is a strategy. Organizations are a strategy. Organisms are a strategy. Communities are a strategy. And what do they do? They adapt to the rules that best favor them. And invariant rules that you can depend on for consistency over time are the most favorable rules to play by. So in this way, Bitcoin is inducing everyone to play its game over time. And that's why it wins. That's why it's such a big deal. And that's why it's an answer to the insanity being induced by fiat currency. So I hope you enjoyed this. This was, uh, again, episode 11 of the Sailor Series. We've got more coming down the pipe. I'll see you guys back here again soon.